Worth, Winter Quarter, 1990, Kauai, Hawaii, second first grade, age seven. You waited for the answers to come, but just like the dark wood paneling in the high small windows, just like your classmates squealing at recess, they remained out of reach. It was addition or subtraction or some equation you were meant to know. You sat alone, but more, you were alone. You tried to erase the feeling that was too big to name. The door was closed. You felt locked. By the way, you were sure you weren't living up to others' expectations. It was your second school in three years, three if you counted preschool, and by the way, you screamed when your mother left you. Preschool must have counted. For kindergarten and first grade, you boarded a bus 45 minutes each way with the girl on the ride home that cradled an ocean's worth of gummy bears from the bulk bin in her lap. Candy was forbidden, but you were far from home. She'd untwist the top of her plastic produce bag, her silver smile a secret as she'd nudge some gummies into your palm. She wouldn't know for the next three years your mother would blame her, blame you, nine cavities by the time you were nine. But you're 39 now and you no longer eat gummy bears. You still carry blame. You still have cavities. You arrived at the homeschool, but even in second grade, you understood homeschool wasn't meant to be a literal school out of someone else's home. In a bedroom that had a desk instead of a bed and chairs instead of a desk, you measured the kid's room you were sitting in against your classmates' freedom as they swung from the monkey bars, unaware of the teacher who was a parent telling you not to worry, to do your best. After they'd explained to your mother, you'd need to repeat some of first grade. Your mother told you, Jazzy, you have mild dyslexia. Your previous teacher didn't prepare you. You need more practice in math. Years later, you'll ask your mother, was it hard for you that I was held back? She'd be halfway through a thick book or studying for another degree, a certificate to prove she was worthy of her parents' love. Once, she had to memorize a map of the world. School came naturally to her and absorbing information, too. Of course it was, your mother answered. But you weren't ready. You were never ready. Even though your mother's love was always for free, you understood it was another type of test for her to accept why you weren't smart in the way she was. But you were as a second first grader. You were very smart. It must have started then, the way you'd spend the rest of your school years comparing yourself to others, convinced they had an easier time because they seemed to excel at what school valued in the way the left hemisphere of their brain dominated with language and facts while the right side of yours mapped the planes of your teacher's face. You never forgot a face, but you didn't know then like you do now. People's outsides aren't a reflection of their insides. Life isn't easy, not for anyone. Like a prize, your mother called you her lap warmer. You radiated heat, while even in a tropical climate, she'd feel cold. But it was only because you held everything so close, while she ran wild, an intensity that drank up the world the way her fire burned anything in its path, even if that person was her. She taught you and your brother how to be in conversation. You ask questions, the other person talks. Then they ask you questions, then you talk. A back and forth that 
eventually you both realize no one else's mother teaches them how to ask questions, how to listen, how to care deeply about another. Like the comfort of the long, gentle skirts of the young homeschool teacher who wasn't part of the family but felt known, every afternoon she would read the class books, the days she picked you to sit on her lap were your favorite ones. You don't recall the stories, only her softness, that she smelled nice, that her lap was like your mother's. Another wall formed between you and your classmates, but perched above the circle, you were no longer trapped. You wove your own ending where it wouldn't take a test after all, if connection to yourself and others was a subject that was taught, then perhaps how thoroughly you sat on someone's lap could be a measure of your worth. It's no wonder the answers never came. They weren't the ones that mattered to you. You were. You were very smart as a second first grader. Wrong answer. October 1998, Alfreda, Georgia, ninth grade, age 15. My skin chafed under the mock neck of my one-piece polyester suit. There was this silver glitter fabric pattern with blue and white that from the inside resembled sandpaper. The leotard part on the crotch like an oversized pair of too short underwear. My lips were painted red, my hair slicked into a high pony tied with a royal blue bow. Why don't we sit over there? My freshman honors language arts teacher offered. She stepped around her desk and led me to the long brown table at the front of her classroom, which was in a trailer because of the school's overcrowding. She had her homeroom during my lunch, and it was loud in the dim space with low ceilings. Clumped into small groups talking, they were two grades ahead and there wasn't anyone I recognized. Taking the plastic seat next to her, my attached royal blue skirt flared up my back while the nylon on my warm-up pants slipped across the chair. The mock neck gave a tug, tightening at both ends. We had a football game that night, and the dance team didn't normally wear our uniforms to school, but we wanted to belong like the cheerleaders belonged, spirited, and what none of us would ever admit out loud, desired. So let's take a look. I removed my paper from my backpack and placed it between us. Bloodied, her red pen marks spilled over every sentence. We had barely begun, but it was already awkward between us, sitting side by side in front of her homeroom. She slid her sandy-colored side bangs behind her ear and uncapped her black pen, pushing the top higher than lower. We stared at it together while I waited for her to begin, because if I opened my mouth, I wasn't sure whether words or emotions would win. I'd asked for the meeting after she handed back my book report for Rebecca. I'd already absorbed the D, but the letter wasn't any less painful. More proof that I couldn't keep up, that I shouldn't have been in honors to begin with. But, ironically, it was my fear of not being smart enough in school that kept me there. No one ever directly said, Jazzy, you're like super dumb, but I absorbed it all the same. It was a product of my hodgepodge schooling combined by the tremendous pressure I put on myself to be top at school, something and someone I wasn't. It was the way I had grown out of my dyslexia, but reading continued to feel painful like the bad kind of work, how I'd mix up long strings of numbers and still do sometimes. It was how I was never able to find the shortcut to anything. I'd kill myself in my thoroughness and yet still not understand the concept by the end. How I didn't learn the difference between your 
Y-O-U-R and your Y-O-U apostrophe R-E until sophomore year from exchanging notes with one of my best friends. I had always guessed between the two until she pointed out I was using them interchangeably and explained the difference in a note. After repeating a half a year of first grade at the home school for second grade, I transferred again to the local public school in Kapa'a and remained through fifth grade. In sixth, we moved from Hawaii, a low-ranked school system, to a wealthy suburb of Atlanta, a high-performing one. The pace and expectation of school changed drastically, and with it, what felt like my inability to keep up. By seventh grade, I'd schlep my heavy textbooks home every night and spend hours on homework. Assignments that should have taken half that or that some of my classmates would complete in school and was buried in defeat and overwhelm. I needed extra help, a tutor, perhaps even transferring to a smaller, more intimate school, but I didn't know to ask for it. Both my parents had skipped a grade in high school, so I assumed I was the problem and needed to try harder. But regardless, I had done the Rebecca assignment wrong. I mean, my mom had done it wrong. Not unlike our getting dress routine from elementary school, I'd start by asking her for help. Step one would appear benign enough, but it was never a gentle ask. I'd come to her loaded and blocked, already with a figurative pile of discarded clothes on the floor. I couldn't start because I thought I didn't know how to write a five-paragraph essay, but if that was the only reason, then step two should have worked. A teacher by profession and a mother by desire, she'd offer various suggestions, but Another layer of resistance would form between the assignment and me, because my mother's offerings never felt like mine. They felt like hers. More proof that I didn't have a voice outside of the one I shared with her. A voice that didn't know how to express this feeling to her. Step three looked like both of us deregulated. Jazzy, she'd plead. It's not that big of a deal. But it is, I'd wail, slumped over the keyboard. I can't do it. I can't. I can't. In step four, my mother would get louder and more aggressive, and I'd spiral further until she'd throw her hands up and exclaim, just move over already and let me sit. She wouldn't walk out on me like she did with the clothes, but her staying and taking over enabled me to abandon myself further. It was too big of an ask. My mother didn't know any better, but this routine never gave me the tools to sift through my own discomfort until I'd hit the root and face what was really going on. Did I have more undiagnosed learning disabilities? Was the assignment and honors language arts in general over my head? Or was it a crater-sized mental block of debilitating perfectionism and connecting it with my worth, my own way of trying to control the outcome? If I never started, then I could never fail. Then I'd never be disappointed in myself or others. With my mother in front and me hovering over her shoulder from behind, she'd take control of the keyboard of my life, reading her sentences out loud. I'd once again know my place, that I was safe. Except another person's reach is only so far, and no matter how many times my mother took the lead, she couldn't take away my own painful lessons, the ones I came here to learn. For the book report, there hadn't been written directions, only oral, and I must have listened as well as I wrote. Except I couldn't tell my teacher this. Um, sorry, miss, it's just my mother typed this paper, not me, so... And besides, the grade wasn't the only part I was upset about. I thought you wanted us to explain what happened. I pointed to a paragraph where I, we, had summarized part of the plot. 
I didn't want a summary. You needed to. She went on this way, going over all the areas she'd already marked up. She was willowy, a meek personality, but by me coming to her upset about my grade, we'd somehow started a confrontation, which was never welcomed in the South. She didn't realize that long before the grade in the paper she'd already won, there was nothing I could do to prove to her I deserved a better grade in my soft shell. It cracked. It's not like I had planned my breakdown, but there I was, unable to stuff down my feelings. My gaze blurred, washed out in a puddle of red. Oh no, no, don't, don't cry. She handed me a tissue. Her forehead creased, embarrassed, but for herself or me, I wasn't sure. It's just one paper. She shifted in her seat and then glanced at her homeroom to check if we were being watched, but they weren't paying any attention to the girl in the itchy suit with the teacher who didn't know what to do with her. I had missed lunch to meet with her, so I left. Her with her loud classroom, me with my dark thoughts, with no more understanding of how to do better. In her piece for Oh! The Oprah Magazine April 2015 issue, poet Laura Kaziski wrote, Even in elementary school, it troubled me when our teacher, with all good intentions, read a poem to the class and then asked, What does it mean? My problem wasn't with the question, but with the idea that there was an capital A answer. With the assignment, I had felt the same, that there was only one right answer and I had gotten it wrong. Even though my mother helped with the paper, the book I had completed on my own, the longest one I'd ever read, And this next part didn't have anything to do with her. This was where school came in, where we were expected to fit ourselves into pre-existing structures. On a deep level, I'd felt misunderstood because I had liked Rebecca, connected to the story. I wanted my teacher to ask, how did the story make you feel? And then allow room for my individual expression. Laura explained how poems are felt in a part of the brain that engages with the senses that sometimes can't be expressed in everyday language, or in this case, for me, in a structured essay. And while poetry and novels differ, the way I experience written language is the same, a somatic understanding that I often have trouble using my analytical brain to summarize and then strip down into a tidy box. In the empty girls' locker room at the basement of the school building, across from my own homeroom, I fixed my makeup in those weird shadowproof funhouse mirrors and then opened my Tupperware to eat before the period ended. I had packed homemade applesauce the way my grandma used to make it, thick slices of apple with raisins and cinnamon cooked until it softened in the microwave, over watery, fat-free plain yogurt the way my mom liked to eat it. It was bland, lacking the layers I desperately desired the cooked raisins and apples overly sweet with the yogurt that wasn't sweet enough, fat enough, enough. Breathing through my nose because of the dank tile smell, I could only swallow two bites stuck with a lunch that would never fill me, with a knowing that it didn't matter what I did, how hard I tried, I would always be wrong. It's just one paper, except it wasn't. To me, the paper and its failings, the layers it represented were a symbol of my life. I'm Jasmine Rasmussen, author and narrator of Saved, a memoir on purpose. Join me weekly for an oral telling of my novel written in verse and prose, broken into short digestible episodes. I'll guide you through my journey back to self. 
Click the link below to subscribe or go to jasminealiyarasmussen.substack.com to find out more.